You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Joining me on today's program in segments two and three is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a prolific commentator on all things political and economic. His website is market-ticker.org. I'm going to talk to Carl about uh, the recent inaction by the Fed after their emergency meeting held last Monday. And I'm going to talk to him about ways to fix the federal budget deficit. And he's got some very interesting and, in my view, uh, valid perspectives that uh, we should be uh, seriously considering. I do have a special report that I'm offering during the month of February. The special report is titled, Stock Update is the Crash Here. If you'd like to get a copy of the report along with bonus information that we'll send you that I believe will be especially timely, all you need to do is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. And when you visit the website, all you'll need to do is give me your name and the address that you'd like me to send uh, the report as well as the bonus information to, and I'll be very glad to get you a, uh, a box of resources that I think, again, you'll find very valuable in today's environment. You know, I hesitate to start this segment, the first segment of this program, by saying, I told you so, but I'm going to do it despite the fact that nobody likes to hear that. Now, here's what I'm talking about. In 2011, I wrote a book titled Economic Consequences. You can still find the book on Amazon if you're interested. Now, in the book, I forecast that the temporary program of quantitative easing implemented by the Fed would turn into permanent policy. Now, if you're a new listener, quantitative easing is, simply put, currency creation. And that's what's been going on since 2011 in ever-increasing quantities. Now, after forecasting in 2011 that this quantitative easing program would turn into permanent policy, it seems that's exactly what has happened. Here we are, 11 years later, and despite the Fed's recent talk to the contrary, it seems, at least from my perspective, that it will likely remain the policy until it fails, despite the fact that we all know inflation is now a reality. Now, as I mentioned at the outset of this segment, a week ago, on February 14, on Valentine's Day, the Federal Reserve held an emergency meeting. Now, this is how the meeting was reported about by ABC News. A worsening inflation picture has touched off a range of opinions from the Federal Reserve's policymakers about just how fast they should raise interest rates beginning at their next meeting in March. James Bullard, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, on Monday reiterated his call for the Fed to take the aggressive step of raising its benchmark short-term rate by a full percentage point by July 1. Esther George, president of the Kansas City Fed, expressed support for a more gradual approach. And Mary Daly of the San Francisco Fed declined to commit herself to more than a modest rate hike next month. 
Now, I find it interesting that ABC News calls raising the short-term rate, the short-term interest rate, by a full percentage point an aggressive step. That would still keep the benchmark rate under 2%, which is still extremely accommodative as far as monetary policy is concerned. I mean, if you go back to 1980, the rate was 15%. In 1990, the rate was 8%. In 2000, the rate was 6.5%. And as recently as 2007, the rate was still over 5%. And yet, they're describing a 1% increase as an aggressive step. It is not an aggressive step if rates are increased by just one percentage point as I have been predicting will be the case, it will be more form than it will be substance. Now, the ABC News article continues after noting and reporting on the comments of Mr. Bullard, Ms. George, and Ms. Daly. The ABC News article says this, Their comments follow last week's report that inflation jumped 7.5% in January from a year ago, the fastest increase in four decades. Prices also rose 0.6% from December to January, the same as the previous month, suggesting that price gains still aren't slowing, as many economists and Fed officials have hoped. The Fed typically responds to high inflation by making borrowing more expensive, which slows spending and the pace of price increases. Well, that has been... Historically, prior to the financial crisis, what the Fed has done. If the Fed wanted to slow inflation, interest rates would increase. If the Fed wanted to boost economic activity through inflation, it would simply reduce interest rates. But since the financial crisis, the Fed has really thrown away that playbook. Now, Mr. Bullard, James Bullard, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, has been the most aggressive. He did an interview on CNBC on the Monday of the Fed's emergency meeting, and he said this, quote, inflation is broadening and possibly accelerating. And during the interview, he stood by his call for a full percentage point increase in the Fed's key rate by July 1. Now think about it. If this is an emergency, why are they waiting until July 1 to do something? That's about four and a half months away. Bullard said we need to front load our rate increases more. We've been surprised to the upside on inflation. Our credibility is on the line here. Now I find it curious, I find it interesting that despite the worst inflation in more than 40 years, the Federal Reserve did not take immediate action to increase interest rates. Instead, they discussed what action they might take in March at their next scheduled meeting. That flies in the face of the word emergency. See, if you have an emergency, you take action to correct the emergency. You take action to try to make it better. If your emergency is a fire, you call the fire department. If your emergency is a car accident, you call the police and the paramedics. Yet, after this emergency meeting, 
the Fed took no action. Now, it does seem the consensus among Fed members is that interest rates, interest rates rather, need to increase, but it seems that that increase, which will probably occur, will again, as I've repeated many times, will likely be modest and be more form than substance. After all, in the context of where the Fed funds rate has been historically, an increase in that rate of 1% is very, very modest. Now, I'm going to talk to Carl Denninger about this in the next two segments, and I've talked about it on the program in the past, but the reality is it's going to be impossible for the Fed to cease currency creation and keep interest rates at these levels without the U.S. government operating with a balanced budget or at least a very, very significant reduction in deficit spending. I mean, the whole idea that China and Japan are ravenously purchasing U.S. government debt is no longer true. China and Japan own about $2.3 trillion in U.S. government debt, and the U.S. government has an operating deficit presently of $3 trillion. So the combined debt holdings of China and Japan would fund the U.S. operating deficit for just over nine months. In fact, the total of U.S. debt held by the top 13 countries, that includes Singapore, India, Belgium, Hong Kong, Taiwan, France, Brazil, the Cayman Islands, Switzerland, Ireland, Luxembourg, and the United Kingdom, would not even fund the deficit at the current level for two years. Now, in the next segment, I'll talk a bit about how quantitative easing works And I'll talk a bit about my forecast moving ahead, and I'll give you some perspectives on how high the Federal Reserve might need to raise interest rates to get inflation under control. Now, before we go to the break and come back with Mr. Carl Denninger, let me remind you that if you'd like to get this month's special report, it's available only during the month of February, and it's titled Stock Update is the crash here. If you'd like to get a complimentary copy of that report, along with all the bonus information we'll send you, all you need to do is visit the website requestyourreport.com. The website again, requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to mail your report and the bonus information, and we will be very glad to get it out to you at no cost, no further obligation. Our mission here at RLA Radio is to educate. So again, requestyourreport.com to get this month's special report as well as the bonus information. requestyourreport.com is the website. I'll be back after these words with Mr. Carl Denninger. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen, and joining me once again on today's program is returning guest Carl Denninger. Uh, Carl is a prolific commentator on uh, all things economic and political. I would encourage you to check out his work at market-ticker.org. That's market-ticker.org. And there is uh, a second site there also. Click here for what the media does not want published. I'd encourage you to check that that out as well. Uh, Carl, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me on. 
Well, Carl, let's talk a bit, uh, as we're recording this on uh, Thursday the 17th, the Federal Reserve called an emergency meeting on Monday, and after the emergency meeting concluded, it seems that nothing changed. What do you read into this? Uh, that's a very odd situation, frankly, because given the inflation data we've had in both the CPI and the PPI, PPI being I think it's volcanic or nuclear waste level hot, somewhere between those two. <laughs> uh, that and and we're talking on an annualized basis too, it, with the month over month data not showing any deceleration of any substance at all. Uh, they did not immediately put fifty basis points on interest rates, and I would argue it should have been a hundred. But they didn't immediately put 50 basis points on was quite a puzzler, considering that the, the agenda items for this emergency meeting were, uh, one, a discussion of the discount rate, which is essentially a dead letter at this point because nobody uses a discount window anymore. And secondly, the, uh, the primary Fed funds rate. And those were, the two, those were the two agenda items. So I fully expected an emergency rate hike given the economic data, and of course we did not get it. So... Do you think the Fed is painted into a corner here that, you know, they, they realize they need to raise rates significantly to get inflation under control, but that will lead to other bad things happening? I mean, I'm thinking back to 2018 when they, when they got the rate, I think, up to two and a half points and, you know, markets hated it. I mean, is that what they're afraid of? Well, they're clearly afraid of that, but the, the problem they have and the, and the challenge for the Federal Reserve at this point is that they've spent the last 20-plus years blowing a bubble, and they've been doing it by enabling ridiculously profligate spending by the Congress. It's the, it, it, people think the Federal Reserve is the, is the bad guy here. It's not. They're accommodating congressional spending by doing this. That's all they're doing. And the problem with inflation is that you can control how much of it you have by the primary rate, uh, which must always be positive, because as we all know, time has value. We all have a certain amount of time on this planet, and none of us normally know how much we have left. But there is no, there is no universe that you can contemplate in which time has negative value. That you know that today is uh, you know is worth uh, more than tomorrow. It's always the other way around. So it's simply because tomorrow's not assured, but today is. So the the thing that I am stunned by is that they've you know they've maintained this fiction on, over the last twenty years and uh, thought it would all end up only in stock prices and house prices and only in assets. And that's a that's that's a, a clever fiction that works only as long as you can offshore more stuff and uh, you know put your pollution and your slave labor over somewhere else, and it doesn't come back and bite you. Well, we've we have done all of that. We've used up all of that slop in the economy. And so now, uh, from the PPI data at least, what you're seeing is not goods uh, cost push so much. It's coming from the labor side. And that's, that is the sort of inflation that caused Volcker to stomp on the brakes in the early 1980s. And that's, that's what they need to do here. Um, and once again, the arrogance of the people in power that think they can control where it goes has been shown to be false. So, Carl, I've, I've made the argument that, uh, you know, for, for the U.S. government to continue to spend the way they do, 
the Fed has to continue quantitative easing. I mean, it's not a direct program, but, you know, the big banks buy government debt. The Fed buys the, the, the debt from the big banks. And, I mean, this budget's got to get balanced or a lot closer to balance in order for the Fed to really do that. Is that is that how you see it? Well, the, the budget has to be balanced entirely. And, in fact, uh, it needs to run a surplus, a primary surplus, so that that debt gets retired. The problem with where the Fed is finds itself today is that uh, the Treasury has been gaming this as well. You would think that with long-term rates at extremely low levels, I mean, when you can borrow money for 30 years at 3%, that is, a, that is an extraordinarily cheap price, okay? You would think that with the, the, the curve being as flat as it is on the longer end in particular, that Treasury would have rolled all of their debt out to the 30-year T-bond. Okay. I mean, I, I would have. I, if you can borrow money that cheaply for 30 years, why wouldn't you do it? That's crazy not to. And yet that's not what they did. They did the opposite because, you know, 3% is more than, than half a percent. So we're going to put it all in bills. Well, that's, that's nuts, but that's what they've done. And yet here we are, uh, we're at a run rate right now in terms of interest expense on the federal budget of about 600 billion a year. So if you were to see a 3% Fed funds rate, uh, that would end up being about fifteen hundred billion, about a trillion and a half. Oh, uh, that's nine hundred billion dollars additional interest expense. Where are you going to get that from? With a three trillion dollar deficit already, right now we've got a four trillion dollar deficit if nothing changes. Well, no, you can't because if if you were to try to do that into into a deficit spending environment, what would you would then provoke a bond buyer strike, and and rates wouldn't be three percent; they'd be eight. So, you, I mean, you know, I don't care what the Fed tries to do. The market, if, if you look at the Fed funds rate and the, the rate on the 13-week T-bill, and you plot those both, and you can get that historically going, going on to FRED, okay, which is the St. Louis Fed site, you plot both of those, you will find that the market leads the Federal Reserve uh, in almost every case. So people say don't fight the Fed, but the truth is something a little more simple, which is that the market is always right, and the Fed does not have the capacity to override what the market insists that they do if they insist. And so if, if the federal government was to attempt to continue to run deficits of that sort of magnitude, or really any magnitude, into an advancing Fed funds rate, uh, they wouldn't have a, 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 a 13-week T-bill that was trading at one. They'd have one that was trading at about a seven. <laughs> so, Carl, th this ultimately leads, uh, I, and give me your take, but doesn't this have to lead to just a deflationary collapse? Well, at some point. I mean, uh, if you look at the federal budget, and I, I've been talking about this for over 10 years, the only place you can get the money to cope with this is out of Medicare and Medicaid. If you just if you just look at where the money is spent, I mean, the, the MTS, the monthly treasury statement, is essentially the general ledger of the federal government. It's it's the, the money that comes in, the money that goes out. It's it's not in double entry bookkeeping format like you'd have in a you know in in, in any kind of real business. But it's close enough. I mean, it's for all intents and purposes. I guess you could kind of look at it as a cash flow statement. That's another way to look at it. Uh, and it tells you the truth. There is, you know, there is no gaming that. Um, Social Security is almost completely funded 
by the tax receipts that come in. But Medicare is only funded to an extent of about 20% of the tax receipts that come in. And so, and Medicaid, by the way, is funded zero because Medicaid is a pure handout program. There is no tax on the other side of it. So they get these short-term fits and starts when you have large capital gains uh, cash-ins because Medicare has no cap on, you know, on, on your, your uh, taxation, whereas Social Security does. When you get large capital gains cash-ins, you get large boosts in short-term Medicare deposits. But that's, that's not a long-term strategy. You can't look at that. We, we set up Medicare in a system where medical care was 3% of GDP, and today it's 20. And yet we did not advance the Medicare tax by a factor of five. Well, you know, you tell me how that's going to work out. So, Carl, when you look at a $3 trillion deficit, uh, let's dig into uh, the information you just put forth there. Can can you possibly balance the budget by revamping Medicare and Medicaid? Well, you'd you'd have to go after the medical system in general. If you were to try to, quote-unquote, revamp it, uh, to bring it into cash flow balance through the tax side, you'd have to charge a 10% Medicare tax rate instead of a 2% Medicare tax rate. I, I'm sure you can figure out how well that would go over. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's a lead balloon for any politician that that tries to come up with that. So that's not going to happen. If you try to socialize the medical system, you actually make it worse because Medicare and Medicaid are a socialized medical system. And, and interestingly enough, Medicare is a cost plus system. Medicaid, uh, you often hear providers talking about, uh, you know, they won't take Medicaid because it pays less than it than you know what they have to actually pay to do whatever it is. And there's some there is some truth to that in Medicaid, but it's not true in Medicare. It's prohibited by law. And a provider that alleges that 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 is what CMS has done with their reimbursement schedule can file a complaint on it. And if they win, not only do they get the extra money, they get a bonus for being right. So that that just doesn't happen on the Medicare side. Um, but that means you have to attack the cost structure within the medical system. There isn't any other way to do it. So, Carl, how do you do that? Because it seems to me that uh... – uh, understanding politicians as I guess we all understand them, uh, they're going to go for rationing. They're, you know, they're going to take the, the approach that likely makes things worse. Um, but but how how would you fix it if you were going to fix it? I'd start putting people in jail tomorrow. I would indict every single one of the major medical systems and hospitals and pharmaceutical companies for price fixing under 15 U.S.C. Chapter One. It's 100 year plus old law. The medical and pharmaceutical industry have twice gone to the Supreme Court arguing that there is an exemption under another law called McCarran-Ferguson. They lost both cases. Uh, so there is every, you know, from a, from a legal standpoint, the framework has been there for the last, uh, and by the way, they lost those cases in the 1970s, 1980s. So the legal framework has been there to stop this for 40 years. And, and the bottom line is, is that the reason it continues on and continues to happen is that we have a bunch of people in Congress who are uh, they, they kneel before the pharmaceutical industry and the medical providers groups, the AMA and the hospitals, uh, the Kaiser Permanentes and the others, and you know the Anthems and all the uh, those other guys. And uh, that's where that's that's who they care about because that's who's making the campaign contributions and which you know are probably reasonably considered bribes. 
Well, my guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, we're going to pick up the conversation where we have just left off in the next segment. Uh, Carl's website is market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check it out. We will be back after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. My guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, Carl is a prolific commentator on uh, all things political and economic, and his website is market-ticker.org. That's market-ticker.org. And Carl, you um, have written some uh, articles. In fact, on your website, I'd encourage the listeners to go check it out on the right sidebar. Uh, you drew to my attention that there is an article titled The Bill to Permanently Fix Healthcare for All. Uh, that's a, uh, a very interesting title to all of us. So let's just talk through that. Uh, j- just give the listeners, if you would, please, uh, an overview of the article. Sure. Essentially, uh, what it puts forward is that uh, if we do not do this, the federal government is headed for a fiscal and monetary collapse. Uh, And that's uh, something that I've talked about at great length for a long time. And it's just a mathematical problem. We we continue to rapidly expand uh, the the size of the healthcare system within the economy. And since the government pays for so much of it with Medicare and Medicaid, it hits them whether they like it or not. If you were to start out by simply enforcing 100-plus-year-old antitrust law, uh, it says you may not collude. And if you do, you're going to go to prison which is what the law provides. It's, a, it's actually a criminal statute. You get 10 years in federal prison for it. Um, and that has twice been to the Supreme Court and found to apply to medical providers and pharmaceutical companies. There was a case called Royal Drug, uh, and then a second one in Maricopa County. Uh, and those two cases established that the defenses that the medical and pharmaceutical industry have tried to raise over the years are, va- are not valid. Uh, they've they've tried to claim that because there, there's another law called McCarran-Ferguson that applies to insurance companies, and they tried to shield themselves with that, and the Supreme Court turned them back and said, no, that's that's not the case. Uh, but if you were to do this and just enforce that as a starting point uh, and force everyone to publish a price, just like you do at Walmart, and everybody has to pay the same price. So now if I need a drug or if I need a procedure done, I can now shop it like I would shop for a gallon of gasoline at the corner store. Uh, and, and then at the same time, force the providers to publish de-identified outcomes based upon the procedures they do. So now I can shop on price and I can shop on quality. All right. So, of course, this does not apply if you get into a car accident and you're flat on your back and unable to you know, make a decision as to what you do. So there's protections within that bill that prevent you from getting hosed in that sort of a situation. Uh, now, the argument that is often made is, what do you do about people that are uninsured? They have no money and they can't, you know, they can't buy medical insurance. And that's simple. Today, the answer is, if you have no insurance and no money, and you show up and, with some kind of an emergent thing going on, they have to treat you. And so what they end up doing is hosing everybody else in order to cover this. Well, that drives up the price, and it ends up back in the government budget indirectly. So what this bill does is does it directly. If you do that, first off, you can only access this if you're a U.S. citizen. Why? Because U.S. citizens pay taxes. So what you end up with is a tax lien. But 
your billing has to be at the same price as anybody else. So the idea, you know, what we have today is a system where you don't have insurance and you show up in the emergency room, you're going to get a bill for $50,000. And yet the insured person, their insurance company pays three for the same thing. Okay. That's nuts. And what this bill would do is stop that. What you'd end up with is a situation where the cost of medical care would collapse by about 80%. Now, along with this, there's going to be a lot of howling because, of course, you know, where this money goes, it pays the salaries of people who don't actually do any taking care of patients. They do a lot of sitting around pushing paper and administering. And all of that margin would have to come out because you're not going to be able to do that. The guy down the street uh, does not have 15 people doing billing and coding. He's got one person that is charging everybody the same price. Well, guess what happens to 14 people in the other guy's office? <laughs> okay. I mean, it's, you know, just economics comes into play at all. And the problem, it pretty much corrects itself. But uh, there's, this is something that if it was to be implemented, uh, I, I envisioned a phased response because if you were to do this instantaneously on day one, uh, of course, you know, there would be a severe problem that would immediately occur. So you do this over the space of 12 months, and, uh, and, but the, the posted pricing goes into effect on the day it's passed, and then you have a, a period of time where the, where the market is able to adjust this stuff out. And uh, that would, it, it would, it would get rid of Medicaid entirely, which would not only help the federal budget, it would help state budgets. That's a huge part of state spending as well. Uh, and the reason it would get rid of it is that if you needed medical care and you had no money, Today, you're, you get that through Medicaid. In this case, you would not get it through Medicaid. It would become a tax lien against your person. And ultimately, if, when you die, you're a state. If there's no money there, there's no money there. The government ends up eating it. Well, guess what? We end up eating it now. Okay, but if you get a job later or you get Social Security and you get retirement or you get a, a, you know, a windfall from an estate or something like that, then it's able to be recovered. So, Carl, I think there's a lot of listeners out there that are, are saying, wow, this makes a lot of sense. But I think there are also a number of listeners out there that maybe don't understand the wide disparity in uh, costs uh, as far as medical care and medical procedures are concerned, depending on who's paying. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. It's, it's essentially the system that we have today works a lot like this. Let's say your car is out of gas, okay? Your, your low fuel light is on. You pull in the gas station. There's no price on the pump. You put, the, you put the nozzle in and you put the gas in the car. And then after you put the gas in the car, the, the pump asks you who your car insurance company is. Right? Are you State Farm? Are you Progressive? Are you Geico? Are you Allstate? Are you whatever? And after you tell them that, then they tell you how much the gas cost. <laughs> I, I mean, you think about how insane that is, right? That's Nobody a great analogy. Them. That is a great analogy. But absolutely nobody would put up with that. I mean, that wouldn't last an hour, and, and somebody would firebomb the gas station, all right? Because, you know what, this guy paid two fifty a gallon, this guy paid 8 bucks. All right? I mean, that's the kind of thing that goes on every day in the medical system, and yet you would never, ever put up with that in the grocery store or at the gas station. No way. And yet, here we are, okay, and it's all because we hide this from the average person, they may get an explanation of benefits that says, you know, after they get done with the doctor or the hospital or whatever, that says, you know, here's how much, you know, you have to pay. And there's these numbers that look absolutely phantasmagorial. Oh, well, you know, this was a $100,000 bill, but the negotiated price with your insurance company was, was $15,000. Okay, well, where do you think the other eighty five grand went? 
right? It didn't disappear. Somebody got charged that $85,000. Somebody else paid the $85,000. And, and it, that it wasn't you this time doesn't mean it couldn't be you next time, right? Now, if you have no money, well, then who cares? But what if you do? You get driven into bankruptcy. They come after everything you've got. You know, you lose your house. I mean, you look at the, the statistics, something like three quarters of all the bankruptcies in the United States today are driven by medical debt. That's amazing. Carl, I want to I want to go back to something you said, because I think it was in the first segment you said that uh, uh, health care spending as a percentage of GDP was 3%. It's now about 20%. And I don't recall the exact uh, time frame of this article. It's been a while since I've read it. But there was some research done that the number of healthcare providers per capita in the United States really hasn't increased. I mean, there's there's a doctor for every X number of of, uh, of of citizens. But when you look at the administrative support people in the medical field, that's grown like by ninefold over that same time frame. So it just seems to me that when when you look at this, the the big increase in medical spending is not really at the care level. It's not at the it's not at the, 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 the I'm going to see the doc and that's costing more. It's like the, the, we've got to pay for all this administration. Well, it's that's a big part of it. Yeah, it's one of the things that I have pointed out to people is that we haven't added any doctors or nurses on a per capita basis, but we've added almost ten times the number of administrators. And of course, they never actually treat a single person. Okay, they they contribute absolutely nothing to the quality of the care that you get at the doctor's office. All they're doing is pushing paper around in exchange for collecting the money. And so if you were to fix this, if you brought competition into the game, this would correct itself immediately. And part of the problem and part of the reason we have this mess is when you have an insurance company, an insurance company is limited to the, on their gross percentage that they can earn by law, state-regulated. So if you're an insurance company, the only way for your business to grow and to get larger is for the number of claims to go up or the expense of the claims to go up. You can't grow your business by becoming more efficient and being cheaper. That actually hurts you because the rate regulators will turn around and say, well, you've got to refund that money back to the, the, the policyholders. It's not your money. You can't keep it. So in every other line of business, when I, when I ran my internet company, if I figured out how to provide internet service to somebody, 20% less money than the guy down the street was, was able to provide it for, I got to pocket the 20%. So that was, and what I would really like to do is I'll pocket 15 of it or 10 of it, and I'll use the other 10 to cut my prices and pound the other guy down the street over the head with that and try to steal all of his customers. <laughs> okay. Well, in the medical field, that never happens. Because you, you, there's no incentive to do it. The insurance companies don't want to see that happen. And the medical providers don't want to see that happen. And, and Obamacare has made this worse because it's, it's essentially a forced insurance buy-in for people who otherwise would say no. And so you're, you've driven the, this model that is fundamentally backwards to cost control and doing more with less. But that's the definition of productivity. That's what we're supposed to do is we get better at things. Well, I'm chatting today with Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. And we're chatting about an article that you can find a link to on Carl's site uh, titled The Bill to Permanently Fix Healthcare for All. Carl, we've got a little about a minute left. Uh, what are the chances that uh, a solution like this will ultimately be adopted in your view? 
I don't know. I, the The biggest challenge from that standpoint is simply that all the political winds and forces are against it because the largest lobbying groups are medical. They are the, the physicians, the AMA, and the pharmaceutical industry. And so they're the ones that spend the money on campaigns, and they're the ones that have the lobbyists on K Street. Uh, and, of course, they're the ones that would have to fire all those administrators if uh, if this was to take place. So I don't see, uh, you know, short of a, a populist uprising and people demanding that this happen, uh, what will force it is when the federal government runs into the inability to continually run deficits without interest rates skyrocketing. And then they just simply can't pay the check anymore. And the choice is going to be between this and $20 for a pound of hamburger, at which point people start to starve. Well, and we may be getting close to that point. So uh, my guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, the website's market-ticker.org. Uh, Carl happens to be on vacation but was gracious enough to take time out of his schedule to uh, chat with our listening audience this week. So, uh, Carl, thank you and love to have you back down the road. Thank you much. Anytime. We will return after these words. This is RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening in today. And thanks again to Mr. Carl Denninger for joining us on today's program. If you've been with us for the entire program today, you know that in the first segment of today's program, I shared with you my view that it's going to be impossible for the Fed to cease currency creation and raise interest rates without the U.S. government operating with a balanced budget or at least a significant reduction in deficit spending. Carl Denninger in the last segment expanded on that as well. Now, in the first segment, I pointed out that China and Japan, two traditional purchasers of U.S. Treasuries, are no longer buying U.S. Treasuries. They total... $2.3 trillion in debt owned between the two countries. The U.S. government currently has an operating deficit of $3 trillion, so the combined holdings of China and Japan will fund the U.S. operating deficit for just over nine months. Now, it's this basic math exercise that has me concluding the Fed won't be able to make monetary policy changes that are necessary to get inflation under control until the budget deficit is addressed. Now let me dig into this point just briefly. The Fed does not buy U.S. government debt directly. The Fed doesn't create currency and then give it to the government to operate. The big banks buy the U.S. government debt, and then the Fed buys the debt from the big banks using newly created currency. That's essentially how quantitative easing works. Now, if we go back and take a look at where interest rates may need to be to get inflation under control, let me give you my take. Now, if we look at the official inflation rate presently, If we take the non-seasonally adjusted rate as of January, it is 7.84%. Now, the yield 
on the 10-year U.S. Treasury is now just over 2%. So roughly speaking, if the inflation rate's around 8% officially, and the U.S. Treasury is yielding, 10-year U.S. Treasury is yielding 2%, that means that an investor in a 10-year U.S. Treasury note experiences a real interest rate that's almost 6% negative. 8% inflation minus a 2% interest rate, that's a 6% negative return in real terms. Now, let me complicate that math by talking about the fact that the real inflation rate, if you calculate the inflation rate they, the way they did in 1980, we have a real inflation rate of around 16%. Now, in the early 1980s, when inflation was at this level, interest rates had to be increased to 20% to get inflation under control. If interest rates are 20%, and inflation is 16%, you now have real interest rates that are positive. That's what we need to see to get inflation under control, in my view. We need positive interest rates on a real basis. Now, if you take a look at where we find ourselves presently and what the Fed is talking about, with the real inflation rate at 16%, if you raise interest rates by 1% or 2%, it really doesn't make much of an impact on inflation. However, it will probably make a pretty big impact on financial markets. We only need to look back to calendar year 2018 when the Fed increased interest rates to a little over 2% and financial markets reacted very negatively. It's my view that they will react similarly again. In fact, we may be seeing the beginning of that now. And if you're just joining me, I am offering a February special report titled Stock Update is the Crash Here. To get your copy of the report as well as bonus information, all you need to do is visit requestyourreport.com. I'll send you the report and all the bonus information, including a couple best-selling books, uh, giving you some strategies to consider in today's environment, absolutely free. Just go to requestyourreport.com and let us know where to mail all the information. Now, past radio guest right here on this program, Peter Schiff, commented on this as well recently. He said, if we measured inflation the way we did 40 years ago, it would be 15%, not 7.5%. And the rate hikes they've proposed, meaning the Fed, are completely inadequate. In fact, he said, if the Fed is intending to pursue the Fed is intending to pursue, rather, an accommodative monetary policy. He said if they raise interest rates 1% or 2%, that is highly accommodative. That's the point that I made. That's the same type of interest rates they had when inflation was below 2%. Inflation's at 7.5%, even the way they measure it, and rising. Schiff says we need to have positive real interest rates to get inflation under control, and at this rate, we're not going to get even close. So in Schiff's words, quote, they're, meaning the Fed, going to continue to pour gasoline on the fire. And so the entire time the Fed is inching up rates, inflation is actually going to be moving higher. Inflation is going to be worse in 2022 than it was in 2021. And real interest rates are going to continue to fall even as the Fed raises nominal rates. Now, Schiff says this, 
The problem is people still don't recognize the box that the Fed has put us in. Because there is no interest rate that the Fed could put to fight inflation that the economy could withstand. If the Fed has to fight inflation, we not only have a massive recession and a crash in the stock and real estate market, but we have a much worse financial crisis than the one we had in 2008. In reading what Mr. Schiff said, I'm reminded of the words of Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers, who said that if the American people ever have private bankers control the issue of their currency, first through inflation, then through deflation, we would have economic problems. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's exactly where we find ourselves today. So my question to you is simply this. Are you ready? Are you prepared? If you know where we are likely heading, you can put a plan together that may help you. And to that end, I'm offering free resources to all the listeners this week, including the February special report titled Stock Update, Is the Crash Here? All you need to do to request the report and get all the bonus information that comes with it, including uh, a couple books that will outline strategies for the current environment, all you need to do is visit requestyourreport.com, and I'll be very glad to get all the information out to you free of charge. Requestyourreport.com is the website. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.